There was a line in that third song we sang that was something like, uh, when it comes to the day of the resurrection and you're standing before the heroes of the faith, I, I think uh, Lauren and Caleb are going to be there because they got six kids out on a day like today. <laughs> just, I can just see myself huddled around some kind of van, frozen to death, trying to get the last child in. So Caleb, I can imagine there, my friend, you're my hero, all right? If you have your Bible, open it to Mark chapter 8. We're going to look at verses 27 through 33 as we continue in our study in Mark. Um, the passage that I had Baxter read earlier is one that is uh, the parallel passage in Matthew of this story. It's a story of uh, Peter's uh, great confession. As we reach that point where it's kind of a, a changing point in the gospel uh, of Mark, really. And uh, we'll see that as we go along. Well, we're going to be in Mark chapter 8, uh, starting in verse 27. We'll go through verse 33. <clears throat> Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, saying, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered, Peter answered and said, You are the Christ. And he warned them not to tell anyone about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And as he was stating the matter plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you're not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Let's pray together. Lord, in this moment that we have, these few minutes that we spend together in your word, I pray, Lord, that you would teach us. And more than that, Lord, I pray that you would convict us of this truth, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Lord, if that has not been the, the declaration of our lives, I pray that no one leaves this room today without that. Lord, I pray not only for those in this room, but those who may be uh, watching online and that are at their homes today and they're comfortable, but they're watching this service. And Lord, I pray that these words would land on their hearts and renew them. And I pray that uh, if there are any uh, that are there, that are listening, that haven't yet declared Jesus as the Christ, I pray today is the day of salvation for them. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, at the beginning of their time with Jesus, the disciples were hoping he was a political Messiah who would defeat the Romans. This was pretty much typical of what people thought of the Messiah, and, and that he would set up his Messianic kingdom, they would be a part of it. But as time went on, they were convinced he was much more. Even before we reached this definitive declaration of Peter uh, in Mark 8 here, the disciples uh, according to John's gospel, we're already on their way to recognizing the deity and messiahship of Jesus. Recall the words of Andrew to Peter. We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. And then Philip told Nathaniel, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. 
Nathanael made a similar proclamation when he said to Jesus, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. At least some of the uh, disciples had heard, if not totally comprehended, John the Baptist's proclamation when the Scripture says that, that John the Baptist saw Jesus coming to him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And several months earlier, when Jesus had walked to them on the water, on the Sea of Galilee, they responded with worship and acclamation saying, You are certainly God's Son. And even uh, the next day that followed Jesus uh, when most of Jesus' followers deserted him, when he was teaching about him being the bread of life, this is the time when Jesus was teaching, he's talking about, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood, and most people said, done, I'm out of here. They deserted him. Even then, Peter declared, we have believed and come to know that you're the Holy One of God. And though these remarks, which are mostly found in John's Gospel, allude to the fact that the disciples had at least knew that Jesus was not an ordinary man, Peter's declaration that Jesus is the Christ is the first such declarative statement in the Synoptic Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The area of Caesarea Philippi was hysterically, hysterically, historically, not hysterically, but historically, been known uh, for their pagan worship, actually. But after this moment with his disciples where Peter declares that Jesus is the Christ and a week later when the, trans, the transfiguration happens, this becomes a very sacred place in the life of the New Testament church. Flipping it from once what was known for pagan worship for that which is true worship of the, of the one true God. This episode also marks a shift in Jesus' ministry. He's now going to shift his ministry to his disciples. His focus is going to be on them, not so much the crowds, but on his disciples as the cross goes, grows closer and closer. This, this is a defining moment in the Gospel of Mark. Up until this point, Jesus has demonstrated who he was by what he did. And now, from this point on, he will press the claim that he is the Christ. This is also a turning point for Peter. Though he's mentioned only two times earlier in this gospel, from now on he's going to become the prominent disciple. This critical moment in the gospel is marked by two questions and by two warnings. And that first question is a general question. He says to them, as they're walking along, and you can kind of get the picture as Jesus is just walking along with his disciples. They're making their way through this region near Caesarea Philippi. And he says, and by the way, when it says that he was questioning them, that, that questioning, the word questioning there is an imperative in the sense that it's, it's this continuing action. He continues to question them. Who do people say that I am? So don't think that when you hear this answer, this John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets, that it's just, that was the answer and that was it and it was, that was end of the discussion. Somebody says, well, it was John the Baptist. And he goes, okay, what, anybody else? And they're like, well, yeah, Elijah, I mean, he's continuing to question them. And so he, he says, who do people say that I am? Jesus loved to teach with questions. Questions are an effective way to get someone to consider their thoughts, form a response, and then engage the one inquiring. You know, if you're a parent, I'm going to jump off on a limb here. You're a parent and you're talking to your kid uh, when they come home from school. Hey, how was your school today? And the answer is, fine. What'd you do? Nothing. All right, that's so guys, end of discussion, that was good. That's why you have to ask better questions. You have to ask questions like, so you have uh, you know, Mrs. Johnson from math, and uh, you know, a lot of people like her, a lot of people don't. So 
what do you think of her? And now you get an answer. Jesus loved to ask questions like that. And so he's asking, who, who do people say that I am? So they th start throwing out their answers. He's, he's, he's using this as a teaching method. He wasn't asking this particular question because he wanted to know the answer, as if he wasn't aware of people, who people considered him to be. He was asking the question so the disciples might disclose to one another the influences that they might be under. He wanted them to hear because they heard these things as well. It made them consider who Jesus was. And they needed to consider where they would land. You know, you guys do know that there are still popular opinions about who Jesus is today. And that they influence people, even believers. Most Americans, this is just some stats for you. Most Americans, 92% believe Jesus was a real historical person. 92%. You can say that's good, but that leaves 8%. By the way, that 8% represents 24 million people in the United States who don't even believe that Jesus was a real historical person, even though they probably celebrate their birthday, which is marked by his actual birth. Um, 87, 92% of general Americans believe that he's a real historical person. 87% of millennials think he's a real person. So uh, of, of ne next generations, by the way, uh, Gen Z is trending very much along with the millennials. A slight majority, 56% of Americans, believe Jesus was God. That means just over half people, they, they, they might believe he's a real historical person, but less believe he was actually God. Millennials were the first generation to dip below 50 at 48% believing he was God. Gen Z's trending with them, as I said. About 52%, that is just over half of Americans, believe Jesus was sinless. So that means almost half believe that, that he, he sinned just like everybody else. And nearly half of Americans believe it is Jesus and good works that will get them to heaven. Now think about it. Do you think it matters if you don't believe that Jesus was a real person that existed in history? Do you think your faith will be affected if you don't think he was divine or sinless? Will, will it alter the purity of the gospel if you think it takes Jesus and good works to get to heaven? And if you're unsure of your convictions, do you think your children will somehow form a better faith, a more stronger faith than what you have? It's an important question Jesus is asking here. Who do people say that I am? Because we're influenced by those around us. And their answers were this, John the Baptist. Now the disciples knew that Herod felt this because right Herod had had John the Baptist killed. And when they started hearing about Jesus and what he was doing, he thought this is John the Baptist's spirit come back uh, you know, to get me because he was guilty for what he had done. And if, and if Herod thought it, it's likely others thought it as well. They also answered Elijah. Some Jews had said Elijah because they were aware of the prophecy in Malachi 4, 5 and following, which says, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. This would imply that Jesus was the forerunner of the Messiah. And you know what we call that? We call that a swing and a miss. Jesus himself said it was John the Baptist that was, that was Elijah. And they also said that he was one of the prophets. Now, earlier in Mark 6, when, when Herod feared that Jesus was John the Baptist back from the dead, some others who were around, likely Jews were there, uh, were the first to mention that they'd heard that Jesus was Elijah or one of the prophets. They mentioned that then. Here in Mark 8, 
This thought is shared in response to Jesus' question. In, in Mark, the scripture says, or one of the prophets. In Matthew, the text reads, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Some Jews were of the opinion that Jesus was Jeremiah because they felt that according to Jewish tradition, Jeremiah would return with the Ark of the Covenant when the Messianic Kingdom was established. The Ark had disappeared with the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem during Jeremiah's, Jeremiah's ministry, and they thought that, that when the Messiah returns, Jeremiah would return with the Ark of the Covenant. This is, you know what this is? This is Raiders of the Lost Ark stuff. There's no scriptural basis for that whatsoever. It was just some tradition. So they thought he was one of the prophets. At this point in the conversation, no one has any, no stake in the game. The question was a general one designed to solicit responses that were not necessarily attached to a person present. The next question could not be answered and disavowed. It was a personal question. It is a dramatic shift to go from who do people say that I am to stop and say, but who do you say that I am? And that's what he asked his disciples. And as we all know, it's Peter who responds to this personal question with, you are the Christ. Or as Matthew elaborates in his gospel, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter owns it. He's now convinced of who Jesus is, although he's still unsure of what that means uh, for them, as, as we'll see in a moment. But there, there's no longer any doubt for Peter. Jesus is the Messiah. What began as an announcement by John the Baptist turned into a confidence for the disciples, which became a declaration of belief in Peter. And as a side note, I think we ought to look at the work of the Trinity in Peter's declaration. According to Matthew, Jesus responded to Peter with, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. The Father drew Peter to himself. Jesus manifest himself to Peter, and the Spirit opened his eyes to the truth. And i got to tell you, that's the way it is for every person who will believe. Now, we have no record of how others responded, either to Peter's confession or in offering their own declarations. We only know that Peter declaratively answered Jesus with a statement of faith. The second question that Jesus offers up to his disciples is the same one that he offers up to all who would come to know him. It's life's most important question. The question from Jesus to you, who do you say that I am, is life's most important question. How you answer that question determines three things. Here's the first one. It determines the state of your heart, whether it will soften or harden to the wooing of the Holy Spirit. Now, we've seen, by the way, in our services as of recent, the Holy Spirit speaking to people's hearts. And they were softened. And they said, Lord, you're asking me to either join this church or commit ministry or whatever, this, whatever God was asking them to do. And you know what? They stepped forward to say, I, I need Jesus. I want to join this congregation. I, I, I know that I'm called into ministry. Now listen, when, you, when you're able to say, Jesus is the Christ, your heart is softened to him. But when you cannot make that statement, when you cannot answer the statement of who do you say that I am, with Jesus you are the Christ, your heart is on the way to being hardened. So it determines the state of your heart. 
And how you answer that question determines the course of your life. Jesus said that he, that he gives us life abundant, right? The, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I came that you might have life and might have it abundant. Whether, it's going to be, whether your life is going to be abundant and full of peace or whether it will be limited by the pleasures and consequences of unrepentant sin. Now listen, whenever you're, you say Jesus is the Christ, you know what that means? That means now you've acknowledged that Jesus is God. He's the Son of God. He is God. And now that means if He's God, I'm not. And that means I need to follow and do what He says. That means I will follow Him. I will trust in Him. And I will do what He says. But if I don't make that statement, I don't have to do that. And I'll just do what I want. And I'll follow pleasure and sin and do as I want. And you know what? You're going to get all that sin affords. And you're going to get its consequences. You're going to get the destruction that comes with it. It determines the course of your life. And how you answer the question, this most important question in life, who do you say that Jesus is, determines the reality of your eternity. Now listen, we're not eternal beings, meaning this. We, didn't, we haven't always existed and will always exist, but we will live in eternity. We had a starting point. All right? September 16, 1961, in Jefferson Hospital, the new Jefferson Hospital in Pine Bluff, Arkansas, this boy started. Now, that, now listen, he started actually nine months earlier, okay? Next week is Sanctity of Human Life Week, and I'm going to talk about that next week. So just get ready. It's coming. Cold weather or not, it's coming, all right? But I, I was born that day. You know, we start here, and then we'll live on in eternity. But whether, how you answer the question of who Jesus is determines whether you'll spend eternity with him or separated from him in hell. And this is not Andy, some Baptist preacher, just standing up here telling you this. This is Jesus who said these things. The one who rejects him will be separated from him eternally and go where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. It determines the reality of your eternity. That's why this is... The most important question in life. The scripture indicates that when Jesus asked this question, that it was with an, in, an insistence for clarity. I want to know who you say I am. Because what he's going to do is he's going to pivot now. In the middle of this gospel, we see as they make this statement, he's going to start laying into them and letting them know more of what his mission really is. And he needs for them to know who he is. It was like a professor coming to the end of the semester and saying, I told you early on that the final would be worth 50% of your grade, and your final exam consists of one question. Who do you say I am? This was the disciples' final exam. From this point on, they alone would get more, more clarity into in what kind of Messiah Jesus was to be, and it would be difficult for them to conceive as evidenced by these two warnings that Jesus gives. The first was a general warning. As soon as Peter makes his de declarative statement, you are the Christ, Jesus warns him, do not tell anyone. Now, by the way, this is the exact opposite commandment that we now have post-resurrection. The, the, the commandment now is what? Tell everyone. Go tell it on the mountain, all right? You, you go tell everyone. But at this point, Jesus is saying... He warned them not to tell anyone about him. Tell no one about me, he said. Now, why would Jesus 
want to keep his identity as Messiah a secret. I'm going to give you four reasons why. Um, this is kind of known as the Messianic secret, all right, that, that, that's found in Mark. First is to avoid being considered just a miracle worker. Note that many of these commands follow miracles. When Jesus does, performs a miracle and he'll tell the person, don't go tell anybody. What do they do? They go tell everybody. All right. But he's trying to keep that low. Jesus didn't want people to follow him just to see him do tricks. He came as the son of God to bring salvation and forgiveness from sin, not just physical healing and miracles. So one, to avoid being considered just as a miracle worker. Two, to avoid undue publicity, which would hinder his mobility and ministry to his disciples. You need to note the, the result of the leper's disobedience in uh, Mark 1.45. You remember that early on? If we go way back to Mark 1.45, you can go back and look at it. The leper is healed. And boy, he's telling everybody, and so much so that they, they could no longer stay in the cities. They had to move out to remote areas because of what it did as far as the popularity and publicity. He could not minister the way um, that he desired. Three, to avoid the mistaken notion of the type of Messiah he came to be. He came to suffer and to serve and sacrifice himself, not simply to display his power. He came to offer himself up. He didn't come as one that, that, that would desire people to serve him and to serve his, uh, as he walked along the earth. He, was, he came to serve the others and to give his life a ransom for many. And fourth, he would want to keep it a secret to avoid the premature death that increased popularity could bring. The more popular he got, listen, the more the Romans took notice of it and the more the religious leaders got angry, the more he would head, was headed to the to cross prematurely. So these are the reasons he would say, tell no one about him. He's not, he's not trying to keep himself a secret from them, but he, he wants the timing to be just right. Right after this warning, Jesus begins, as soon as he says, you know, tell no one about me, and then he starts unpacking. He goes, look, here's what's going to happen. So look back at the verse again in the scripture here, and it's in, in verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Imagine hearing that as he gets in that serious moment. Tell no one. And by the way, this is what's about to happen to me. This is where we're headed. He starts unpacking about what he's going to have to, what's going to happen to him. And Peter pulls him aside and starts to rebuke him. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. You're with Jesus, and you pull Jesus aside, and you're going to rebuke the guy you just called the Christ. That is the anointed one, the holy one of God. I'm going to pull you aside and rebuke you. And it's kind of interesting how the, the, the language is here in Mark, because... He says, as he begins to start, so it's what he does is Peter starts to rebuke him. And Jesus glances and sees the disciples who are probably immediately going, looking at Peter with that kind of side look like, uh, what's he think he's doing? And, and at that moment, whenever Jesus sees his disciples, he immediately turns to Peter, uh, to Peter and he turns around to him and he says, hey, get behind me, Satan. This guy just a moment ago was 
the hero declaring that he is the Christ. And now he, he's getting this rebuke. And so now what we get is a personal warning. He says to, to Peter, get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Jesus isn't literally saying that Peter became Satan, but that Peter's interests were in line with Satan's. Now, we might not think it's an evil thing that, that Peter didn't want Jesus to die. That's all he was saying. Whenever Jesus starts to talk about the things he had to suffer and to die, Peter's just pulling him aside to say, don't talk about this. And so we might not think it an evil thing that, or at least that he didn't want Jesus to talk about dying. We might even consider it just a concern of a friend who doesn't want their friend to speak of such things. But Jesus sees Peter's intent differently. Jesus' whole purpose was to seek and to save that which was lost. And the only means by which that would happen was the cross. He was not on the side of God in that comment. He was on the side of Satan, and Jesus pointed it out quickly and decidedly. We might think that on occasion it's a minor thing to swap man's will for God's, but it's not. The very thing that Jesus was teaching his disciples in that moment about his suffering and death and resurrection is the very heart of the gospel. No one, no person comes to salvation without acknowledging it. Jesus is warning Peter not to put his interest above the Father's interests. Peter would need this lesson again in the Garden of Gethsemane when he fell asleep. He would need it then when he struck out in violence with a sword and cut off the guy's ear. And he would need it in the courtyard during Jesus' trial when his self-interest would cause him to deny even knowing the Lord. Maybe we need to take a moment and ask ourselves where we're putting our own will above that of the Lord. When we do this, we're not aligning ourselves with Jesus or being neutral. We're siding with Satan himself. This exchange with Peter is about to lead Jesus into a discourse. He's getting ready to go under this discourse about the cost of following him. There is no more time for fence sitting. Jesus begins drawing lines to say either you are in or you're out. You need to step backwards from the train or you need to get on board. I was so hoping that the weather would be good so we could have Sunday evening service because it would be good to follow right behind that because uh, Sunday evening service is going to be about that. But we're going to talk about that next Sunday evening. So I might just refresh you a little bit on some of this stuff today next Sunday evening. But Jesus starts talking to him. He gets real serious in that moment after he rebukes Peter. And he says, let me tell you what it's going to cost for you to follow me, to be mine, to say that you belong to me. Listen, I want to ask you this morning, how have you answered life's most important question? You say, well, I have other questions. And that's what we like to do. We like, we like to ask other questions. Well, I want to know this. I want to know where Cain got his wife. I want to know why even uh, women and children were killed in certain battles in the Old Testament. I want to know if what David did to Bathsheba was adultery or rape. I want to know why Solomon had so many concubines. We have all these other questions that we have. But Jesus is telling us there is one question that rises above them all. And how you answer that question goes a long way in finding peace with all the others. Look at me. You know what that question is? Who do you say Jesus 
is. Listen, you can say, I think he's just a historical character. I mean, a, a literal historical person who lived in the past. Oh, I don't know if he was God or not. Oh, I don't know if he did all those miracles or not. Doesn't mean much when you say that. Can you honestly say in your heart of hearts, he is the Christ, the son of the living God? If you've never done that, if you can't make that proclamation, I just want to tell you something. You don't know the Lord. And you need to. You need to be able to answer life's most important question with a resounding. Jesus, you're the Lord. You're the son of the living God. And you have an opportunity to do that this morning. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray in this moment for the time that we have of invitation here. Pray that your Holy Spirit would be moving. Lord, I pray if there's any in this room who have never proclaimed from their heart that Jesus is Lord, I pray that they would get rid of all those lesser questions and move to the one that really matters. Lord, I pray for people in this place today and who are watching online who would say in their hearts, I'm just not sure. But they hear the Holy Spirit speaking to them even now, calling them, saying, trust, trust in me. Lord, I pray that their heart would not be hardened but softened and they would trust in you today. Lord, there are people in this room who need to join this fellowship. They need to come and say, we've been coming for a while, but we, we need to join this fellowship. So, Lord, I pray that they would make that will known so that they could become part of this body and, and serve here as you planted them here. Maybe there are others still, Lord, too, that, that you're calling into the gospel ministry. Maybe there are others still yet that you're calling that you will use in service for your kingdom in a vocational manner. Lord, we just pray and we give you this invitation and pray that your spirit would be moving. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet right now as we have this time of decision? Both Steve and I will be here at the front to receive any who would come. You come as we sing.